0: Matthew chapter 10. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: So as Pastor Terry noted, last week was our missions conference, and as it came to its end, well, you know, Pastor James Cha and his wife Faith had some extraordinary stories and experiences, and, some, and a different perspective on Islam than what we normally receive here in the West, and particularly in our university classrooms. So it was a stimulating time, and as we came to the end, I'm thinking, it's a pity that it's only one weekend. You know, if you end up with a Poor speaker, you think, I'm grateful it's only one weekend. You get a good speaker, you think, oh, I wish we could do more of this. So today won't be more of the same quality. But as it turns out, at least, the passage set for today continues to focus on missions. And for what it's worth, I'm trying to arrange, one of our pastors in-house, Pastor Rudah, has had some experience studying about Islam, not some experience, but some has done some study of Islam, so we're trying to arrange for some time for a further discussion of some of the details. Perhaps it'll be over winter Sunday school. I tried to arrange it for this week, but Pastor Rudah's schedule is way too busy for that, so maybe in the winter we'll have some time to think, learn more, study more together about Islam. But for today, we want to look at the passage before us. And really, the passage here has three parts to it. And I want to alert you to the three parts because we're going to only look at two. You can divide the passage into the first section of it. It was really about a reflection on the role of mission or the role of missions and our role in it. The second part is about the parameters of mission. And the third part, the predominant section of it, is about opposition to mission. Now, of the three, we're going to focus only on the first and the second. First and the third. Uh, the second we looked at a little bit a couple of weeks ago. A fair bit of it is about healing. And some of it is very much about the first century. Jesus is about to send his disciples on in mission for the first time. And as he sends them out, he gives them specific guidelines, parameters. For example, speak only to Jews. And a lot of the specifics are dated to the first century rather than to the 21st. And since we don't have time to cover everything, then we're going to omit the part that's predominantly dated to the first century and we'll focus on what's relevant for us to a greater or lesser extent. So we'll skip the middle part and then look at the beginning and the end. So the role of mission. Let me draw your attention to this. Chapter four verses 18 to 22 listen to as I read it to you chapter 4 verses 18 to 22 as Jesus was walking beside the sea of Galilee you know he's first he's coming public this is his first steps into ministry notice what he does first as Jesus was walking beside the sea of Galilee he saw two brothers Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen he said come follow me And I will send you out to fish for people. Now, Jesus has not himself even started to fish for people. And yet the first thing he does, before he does that, he launches into ministry, is he calls Peter and his brother Andrew. Then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, uh, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So before Jesus even begins his public ministry, just on the verge of beginning his public ministry, just when he's about to go out, the first thing he does is to call four of the disciples who would later become the apostles. And now, in chapter 9, Jesus has gone through the villages and towns and he's been teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And now what does he do? Chapter 9, verse 35. He goes through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers. He invites them to pray, And then he invites them to answer their prayers. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him. He gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. There's an important lesson here. As Jesus is about to begin his public ministry, he calls to himself some disciples. Jesus gets through the first phase of his public ministry, and he realizes that it's far too big for him to handle. So what does he do? He sends out his disciples on their first mission. Now, if you know the gospel story, you know that their real mission doesn't begin until Matthew chapter 28. Their real task begins in Acts chapter 2 when they receive the Spirit. And yet even at this stage, after this preliminary stage of Jesus' ministry, after he's had one preaching tour, he sends out the disciples to extend his ministry. And beyond that, their ministry is parallel to his. He sends them out. He's been preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and he's been healing every disease and his sickness. And as he sends them out, he gives them the authority to preach the gospel of the kingdom. To send out impure, to, to cast out impure spirits and to heal those who have various illnesses you see what 's the point for us? You see this was never fully about Jesus coming and preaching the gospel. You know, if you read the Old Testament and we went through salvation history last year, if you read the old testament you' look the messiah is going to come he 's going to set up the reign of god he 's going to rule over the reign of God, and then Perfect peace will be established in Israel. And everyone will flock to Israel to learn about God. The Messiah is going to do it. All. Single handedly. But what we find in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus actually does really come is, Jesus never plans to do it all single handedly. You know, the Old Testament expects it to happen instantly through the Messiah. And in Matthew's Gospel, we find out it's not going to happen instantly. It's going to be a two-stage process. Jesus comes and begins, inaugurates the, the reign of God. But then from the very beginning, he calls disciples so he can train them. And then after the first round of training, he sends them out so they can gain experience with authority for the same kind of ministry as his own. Their ministry, their role in life, was to be an extension of Jesus' ministry. Jesus never intended to do do it all. He always intended to work through them. And he sends them out now to do his work of teaching and healing. To be his servants. To extend his reign over the world. And it's the same for us. You can look through missions history and you can find out that as the church in one area struggles and then Dies, as it loses its vision for what God is doing, it no longer sends out missionaries. It no longer engages in mission. And the church shrivels before God. His purpose has never been simply to save us. His purpose from the very beginning, as with those disciples, so with us, is to send us out into mission. And to send some of us out into cross-cultural missions with an S. One concrete application would be this. Some people, well, we we should all feel uncomfortable with the notion that those who have not heard about Jesus will not spend eternity with him in heaven. This should make us all uncomfortable. And some people reject the doctrine, the teaching of scripture, because it makes them uncomfortable. They don't want to believe in a God like that. It's not really about God. It really is about us and his church. When Jesus came, he called disciples, first of all. After his first preaching ministry, he sent disciples out. At the end of his life, he sends them out again. The reason the world does not evangelize is not a flaw with God or with Jesus. It just shows that the church has not prioritized this enough over the last two millennia, that the world is still, so much of the world still has never heard of the gospel. It's never been just about Jesus. From the very beginning, it's included us as those who extend Jesus' ministry. Now at the same time, a difference creeps in here. Take a look at four uh, well, let me listen as I read to you again from chapter 4, 23 to 25. When it's Jesus ministering alone, hear what happens. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. So here's Jesus healing, casting out demons. The gospel spreads. He's preaching news tra- Verse 24, chapter 4. News about him spreads all over Syria all the wider region around Galilee. And people bring to him all who are sick with various diseases and and suffering severe pain. They bring to him the demon-possessed and those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he heals them. There are large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and all across the Jordan on the east side of the Jordan, the west side of Jordan, from the north part of Galilee to the southern part of Judea, all people come and follow him. Large crowds come to follow him. That's not enough. What happens when Jesus sends out the disciples? Chapter 9, verse 35. When Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness, he sees the crowd and he has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to do what? You see? To send out workers. See what happened in the first stage when it's just Jesus? Wherever he is, the crowds come in. And that's not enough. Not enough people can hear it. The gospel can't go to enough places. So in the second stage, he calls his disciples and he sends them out. No longer it's for people to be coming in. Now it's we go out. And in missions, this is called the centripetal versus a centrifugal approach to missions. Centripetal, everybody comes in to a central location. Centrifugal, the gospel goes out. And Jesus indicates his purpose from the very earliest stages. His purpose is not for for people to have to come in to get the gospel, but for us to go out and give the gospel. Now think about some of the implications of this. I've mentioned before, but I'll I'll reference it again, you know. we don't have enough Bibles in the pews anymore. We need more Bibles to stock the pews with Bibles. It's nice to have the same one to read so that the scripture reader can always say, now turn to page 908 and most of your pew Bibles. Well, we're kind of running short on pew Bibles. I don't know. I don't If you want to take a pew Bible, take one. You know, It's not like you're stealing. We welcome you to take pew Bibles as long as you're going to use it, right? But the reason we haven't bought more is because we have to figure out which version to buy and we have to kind of think about it. Why are there so many choices about Bibles if you live in America, speak English, read English? Why do we have so many Bible choices? Why, you know, every decade, I don't know, three, four, five different versions of Bible are available to us, new translations? Why? Why does every famous speaker have his own study Bible? Well, why do we have so many choices when much of the world doesn't have Scripture In even one version. Why do we in America have so many? Or consider this. If missions is about going out rather than coming in, if missions is centrifugal rather than centripetal, when new churches are planted, why are they so often planted in middle, middle upper-middle-class suburbs which already have churches? rather than in countries where there's hardly any church. Or you could ask, you know, missions funding. Uh, Ralph Winter raised an issue about this uh, 30 years ago. At a time when uh, of every dollar of missions funding, maybe 97 cents of that dollar was spent reaching or developing, discipling Christians in areas where the gospel was already available and so little of it to the unreached. If missions is about so throwing things out, why do we throw so much money in? And so it's a great pleasure to be in this church where about a quarter of our funding goes out. And the missions policy is biased toward people going out to unreached. Because from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, His purpose was to call disciples, train disciples, and then send them out so that people didn't have to come in to hear the gospel, but they could stay where they were and we would go out to give them the gospel. So these are the first, the the role of missions today. This is the first lesson that we can learn from it, is that our role is to extend Jesus' ministry into new areas. That's our primary role. The role, our collective role, not every individual, but our collective role as a church, uh, the broader church in America, and our role as a church, is to send people out into missions. Primarily, to counter the imbalance from inviting people in for missions. Now, the rest of this passage, apart from the part that we're going to skip, the rest of this passage focuses on on one particular element, and that's opposition to missions. So notice that, if you look at the passage with me, page 687, chapter 10, notice how so much of this is about opposition. Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils. You'll be flogged in the synagogues, local councils, religious councils, local versions of the Sanhedrin. And you'll be flogged in the synagogues. There'll be religious persecution. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Political persecution. When they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. It will not be you, but speaking but the father, the spirit of the father speaking through you. And then there will be family opposition. Brother will be betrayed brother to death, and a father will betray his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of me. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The servant is not above his teacher, nor nor servant above the student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So the main theme in the second half of the passage, as he sends out the disciples, now the disciples don't all don't endure all of this in this next mission. In their first mission that he sends them out on, they don't endure all this suffering. But he's anticipating, and Matthew's collapsing the history, to show what they will face throughout the book of Acts, throughout the history of the early church, as many of them are persecuted, or opposed, or martyred. He says, I send you out like sheep among wolves. And they'll face religious opposition, political opposition, family opposition, universal opposition, he says in 1222. You'll be hated by everyone because of me. What can this tell us about missions today? Think, first of all, about areas that suffer violence. And not not, not like us, but areas that suffer violence. Jesus anticipates the kind of persecution that some countries see today, whether they be under uh, oppressive governments or oppressive religious structures, whether they be in Hindu areas or Muslim areas, or whether they be in communist governments. Jesus anticipated the persecution people would face. And his response to it never justifies taking up arms and committing violence. He didn't even invite them to defend themselves. He said, this will be your lot in life. In frontier missions, it is often the lot in life. Now, this is really important, because as missions went to China, say, 150 years ago, or remember Pastor James Cha's story about the first missionary to North Korea. How did he arrive? Often the missionaries arrived on gunboats, Or on merchant ships. And they arrived in the company of people that looked like them. There were white people in areas where there weren't white people. On boats full of white people. In areas where white people hadn't been seen much. And the white people they were with came to kill or came to exploit. And the missionaries rode on the boats because that was the safest way to get there. It's a real problem to try and explain, well, we're not going to be violent, we're not going to exploit you, but everybody else that looks like us will. You know, there's no basis in this text for violence and Christians engaging in violence. And we have to admit that our history has been one, as a Christian church, our history has been one of nationalistic violence sneaking in under the guise of the church. But let's be clear about it. Violence done in the name of Christ has been actually done in the name of economics, or politics, or church, or or, or states, not in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no biblical justification. There is no justification from Jesus for engaging in violence in the course of mission. The only thing that there's justification for is suffering violence as Christians. And so you look at the history of China Inland Mission, now OMF, the mission that David Rowe and I belong to. They made a point of differentiating themselves and not appealing to local government authority when persecution came. Because when persecution comes, it's our job as Christians to bear it, not to fight it. So there is this one historic anomaly you know, b- back when there was a Soviet Union, the life for Christians was very difficult in the Soviet Union. And then in 1989, when the Soviet Union fell, what happened? A lot of American Christian, a lot of churches, a lot of organizations sent people into the Soviet Union to teach them how to run discipleship programs. Why? Because we had very systematic discipleship programs. They'd actually lived through persecution. And some fell away, but a great number survived. If we want to know something about discipleship, should we go and give them our programs? Or should we send and invite them to come here and teach us, show us their lives? The founding pastor of this church endured years in a re-education camp in China because he was a pastor. And this is one of the great benefits of being in a bicultural context is because at least among the elderly in the CM, we have some people who endured persecution for the sake of the gospel. And we can learn from that. We can respect what they've endured. Now, the other part of this passage is not just about opposition, but he also talks about how to respond to opposition. Chapter 10, verse 16. I send you out like sheep among wolves. They are going among wolves, but what is? they are not to be wolves. They are to be sheep. Chapter 10, verses 19, 20. When they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For the spirit of your father will speak through you. Chapter 10, 22. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But, and notice how hard this is, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. What will happen to those who don't stand firm to the end? Verse 23. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. The one sense of relief that we've gotten so far is, if you're persecuted, you can run away. You can't run away from Christ, but you can run away from danger. 24 to 25. The student is not above the teacher. The servant is not above his master. It's enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters. Jesus says, look, they did it to me. Why would you complain if they do it to you? Why wouldn't you expect it? We share Jesus' suffering, if we suffer for the gospel. Verse 26, don't be afraid of them. Don't go underground. There's nothing concealed that won't be disclosed or hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What's whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Verse 28, this is even tougher. Don't be afraid of your opponents. All they can do is kill your body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Chapter twenty, chapter 10, verse 29 to 31. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet none falls to the ground without outside your father's care. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So, so don't be afraid. You're worth more than sparrows. What he's saying is, you may die, but only in God's time. It's not your opponents who are killing you, It's God who's permitting your death. God has control over this. Chapter 10, verse 32 to 33. Again, tough. Uncompromising. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Chapter 10, 34 to 36. Anyone who loves his father, chapter 30, verse 37. Anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 37. Verse 38. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you see how strong Jesus' words are? Now, what does that say for us Today. One of the interesting parts of being in a bicultural church where many of our members come from China and some of them are are grad students or professionals working here for a short time and going back to China. One of the issues we have to face is do we practice private baptisms? Do we practice, which you could say, secret baptisms? And, And pastoral staff have puzzled over this and it's really not our business to decide this because our lives aren't at stake. So we consult... National Christians in China, or our missionaries serving in China, say, what should we do about this? You know, when people get baptized, we have all these photos, and then the photos are posted on the backboard. What happens if you're a member of the Communist Party? Or what happens if your father is a leader of the Communist Party, and, and you get baptized, and your picture taken, and then it's posted on the backboard, or online, you know, the big picture. Of the, what do we do about this? You know, it's an issue we have to ask about. And it's not really a decision for us to make who are living in safety. It's an issue for those we need advice from Christian leaders in China to make this decision. Do you know, over half our church now is converts since 1989, Tiananmen incident. Over half our church is converts since 1989, China. Our members really were bought by one or two hundred lives of Christian missionaries and thousands of lives of national Christians throughout the 20th century. And, And then we can have this big church. How are people, how are Muslims today going to come to faith? in a lot of these closed countries are we going to be able to do it without people dying? And the promise of our own history is not that people must die, but that God does not let his people die in vain. It's not whether the question is whether people are going to die. But whether God is going to redeem those deaths and see the gospel spread, there'll be reward for the suffering. And the other thing we want to learn from Tiananmen is this, is that a culture opens up to the gospel only once some outside force or inside force, only once that culture is broken down. Cultures are generally generally cohesive. So World War II broke down Japan and the gospel spread for a while and then Japan economically rebuilt and then the gospels held it at arm's length. Tiananmen opened up a lot of people to the gospel. Think about what's going on in the Arab world now. Do you think that's not part of God's plan? Think if Tiananmen could break open the country of China for the gospel. Think of what all that... Muslim Muslim violence in the Middle East could do for breaking open closed cultures to the gospel if people are prepared and willing to go in. But finally, we wanted to listen to what Scripture says to us, not what it says to other people. What it says to us. We're not going to be persecuted today. We'll face some opposition maybe for some of our doctrines. You know, uh, some schools, for example. I know some schools in Massachusetts celebrate Ally Week. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on with Ally Week that we're supportive of. Let's get rid of bullying. Let's get rid of harassment. There's a lot of things that go on with Ally Week that we're supportive of. But, you know, when, when the school administration sends notes to the teachers and say, okay, support Ally Week. Wear this, these colors on Monday. Wear these colors on Tuesday. Wear these colors on Wednesday. So that everybody knows where you stand. And a Christian has to decide, am I going to wear those colors? on Monday. Everyone will know. They won't even have to talk to me. They'll just look at me and know whether I support or don't support LGBT rights and lifestyle and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And there's a reason the schools are doing this. It's to put pressure. Will we? Or won't we? And it's not just about sexuality. You know, T-shirts, where they erase hate why is it that I'm a hater if I hold to biblical stands of morality on sex between a husband and a wife Am I then a hater if I'm hold to biblical standards of premarital sex Am I then a hater if I hold to biblical stance on adultery Am I then a hater if I hold to biblical stances on drunkenness and drug addiction Am I then a a, a hater if I hold to biblical stance on greed or corruption or anger Or hate? Or gossip? Or violence? These are just small, subtle social pressures. Will we stand up or or, or will we succumb? And often, you know, it's not even opposition. Sometimes it's just life gets difficult. Somebody we love dies. We lose our job. You know, life is not as rewarding as we hope. And then we, we waver in our commitment to Christ. If this was Jesus' word to those who face persecution, what would his word be to us if we turn from him? For little things. Hard things, but little things compared to persecution. So the message of this passage is twofold. First, God invites us to continue Jesus' mission. And second, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution, we carry on that mission. The salvation of the world depends on it. And Jesus indicates here that maybe our own salvation depends on it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would honor those who've gone before and given their lives in the cause of mission. Let us be worthy to follow behind in their footsteps. We thank you for the privilege of this calling and ask for your empowerment that we might be worthy of this calling. In Jesus' name, amen.